Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Take a seat with Alfred Bucci. I could tell you a little story if you want to hear it. And prepare to be taken back. I'm 98 years old. A World War II veteran. The only time you get scared is the beginning. His memories of those days nearly 80 years ago. Now, a few bad ones, but you also have a lot of good ones. Are crystal clear. December the 13th, we were offensively ready to go do some fighting. And for some reason, though, they stopped December the 15th. He fought through the Battle of the Bulge. The next day, which was December the 16th, that's when all hell broke loose. And twice maintained post when left behind overnight in enemy territory. I gotta list them someplace. He's a well-decorated soldier with awards including a bronze star and a purple heart, to name a few. To tell you the truth, each one is a major combat, each, each star. So three major combat. That's what I'm proud of. If you can't tell. Guys that uh, I grew up with. Only one or two get it back. Al Bucci is filled That's with that. pride. I'm not proud of the American. That's all. That's all I can say. On this day, I'm anxious. He has a new reason to be proud. I want to see what he's like and how he acts. And... So Bucci is five months old today. You see, Bucci is meeting his four-legged namesake. From Warrior Canine Connection, which does uh, service dogs for veterans with disabilities. They are named after previous veterans. Come here, Bucci. Hey, Bucci. Come here. Come here, Bucci. Oh, oh. <laughs> The two Boochies, or Booch the Pooch, as Al likes to call him. Here you are. Look. <laughs> Instantly connect. You're happy as I am. <laughs> Champagne to toast Bucci's career. In a rare moment. Well, what can I say? Fit for a champagne toast. It's a great privilege, and they everything goes smooth from here on in, and here on out. And it's really, really, really a great thing. You got organizations doing doing a wonderful thing for everybody. Giving back and honoring veterans. <laughs> I'm just so proud and blessed. <laughs> thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you both. <laughs> Who so bravely defended our country. I never dreamed something like this would happen. So next time you take a seat with Al. Here, Boogie. Here, Boogie. He'll have a new story to tell. <laughs> I can't, can't give it to you. You can't drink this. You're too young. As long as you'll listen. It's an honor for me. It's an honor. In Catonsville. As it was. Good. Good dog. Maxine Stryker. <laughs> Fox 45 News. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And Jeff Cop said it cannot join us tonight, so it is me and Henry Sledge. And I just want to say Merry Christmas to Privates First Class Albert Bucci and all the World War II vets that are still with us on this planet and joining the holiday, hopefully with their families and all of our thoughts and prayers and holiday wishes are with you guys. How are you doing today, Mr. Sledge? I'm doing, doing just fine, man. It's uh, gotten pretty chilly down here in Alabama. It's probably about 45 today. Ooh, Not nearly as, uh, well, you know, talking to a Florida boy, I guess that says something, but just, I'm just, 
I've been doing a lot of reading on Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, appropriate, seasonally appropriate, tied right in with your, your sound bite there. And, you know, constantly, man, I'm just thinking about, I am so glad I'm not, you know, out on the Schnee Eiffel in a, in a dadgum foxhole when it's, you know, I, what were the actual temperatures? Were they, they weren't sub-zero, were they? On Battle of the Bulge? Yeah. I know it was the coldest in like 32 years, let's see. Yeah, uh, I know. I mean, they were, were bitterly, the brutally cold. But I, you know, they did have a lot of snow at certain points, so. Bulge. Let's see but, here. Quick search. Um, I mean, this time of year, man, it's always Battle of the Bulge. According to um, APNews.com, one conflict that stood out was the six-week Battle of the Bulge, which took place in European theater 76 years ago. This was published last year. In December 1944, it was waged as a harsh wintry conditions, about eight inches of snow on the ground, and the average temperature of 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So on average, 20 degrees, which means occasionally it would dip below that. But sitting out in a foxhole in 20-degree weather, with little to no winter clothing. And, you know, if you're lucky, you had an M41 or an M43 with a wool liner and you had mm-hmm. your wool shirt on and maybe a pair of wool trousers underneath your HPT pants. Or if you're super duper lucky, you got a hold of a trench coat. But yeah, those guys are out there in 20 degree weather. Um, which, yeah, if you're getting out of your car or out of your living room and walking to check the mailbox, 20 degrees ain't bad, but when yeah, you're living really. in it 24 hours a day for six weeks, uh, it, oh, it, it would be so debilitating. And I mean, imagine, so my uncle was in the 741st tank battalion, you know, so they were up, they were linking up with second infantry division up near Vollershot at Harbor Head Crossroads on the North shoulder of the bulge. So, you know, having read everything I can on, on tankers, even read one memoir of a guy who was a German tanker and he would talk about waking up in his tiger tank in the morning. And it, it just, you know, of course it's nothing but a metal inside, inside the turret there down in the, down in the hole and the entire, everything would just be condensated and, you know, icicles dripping off the wall. And I mean, you know, that's just like a giant ice box. And just imagine being like a mortarman. Not, you know, some of them had gloves. They had the fingers cut off for the trigger and all that. But some of those guys didn't have gloves. Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you know all about the equipment required to operate a mortar. But could you imagine trying to unbox those mortars out of those, what do they call them, the clover leaves in the, in the snow? Yeah. Your fingers are frozen. You're trying to get all that crap apart. You're trying to pull those crates apart. Obviously, you'd use your knife as much as you can. But the mortar itself before you drop that first round and warm that son of a gun up, that's just a big oh, yeah. steel cold pipe. Yeah. And every, you know, everything you're touching, be it ammo, in many cases, ammo boxes, Browning automatic or rifles, ammo crates for wood. But I mean, everything you're touching is metal canteen, everything, Yeah, everything with so, the exception of your clothing. Imagine in the heat of battle, you've been laying in a foxhole. Maybe you're on, maybe you're, it's your time to watch the line, right? Maybe you're prone, yeah. maybe you're not, but maybe you are. An M1 web belt in the middle of summer during a reenactment can kind of be tricky to get that snap open, to get that M, that M block out. Imagine doing okay. it when you're in 20-degree weather. Perhaps you've been prone in the dirt and ice and the mud, and that 
webbing is super stiff and hard. Oh just yeah. Trying to just the simple task of you know trying to get your ammo out of your 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 web belt, just everything, just compounded. Or, you know, you take a clip and try to put it in your M1 rifle, mm-hmm. and you know you're. I mean, good. I take. I have one. I'm not. I'm not as active with it as you and Jeff are because I don't do living history stuff. But I mean, I've taken it out. I've showed my son how it works. Uh, I'd used to shoot that particular M1, but it's been since the nineties since I did. But I mean, you know, stuff beats your hands up, man. Mm -hmm. And I mean, then if it's 20 degrees or 15 degrees, it's even more so that way. So good grief. I don't know. Every little thing, just, just the sensitivity level of your cold fingers, your cold nose, your ears, your cramped toes, just sitting out there, just as it's caught off. So tell me, I mean, from doing living history, so like I know some of the guys, because I just, after I read John Tolan's book on the bulge, which I finished a few days ago, okay, um, then I read the Osprey book on the first volume of Battle of the Bulge. You know, they've got two volumes on the bulge. And reading Tolan's book and then reading the Osprey book, like it'll show some really good artwork, the guys and what they would be wearing. Mm-hmm. And the overcoat, the heavy wool overcoat, what, what was the designation of that? Um, I don't know, per- particularly just because I'm down here in Florida. I do know one gentleman who had one that he would happily wear it when it got to 50 because it was cold enough here in Florida to wear it. But yeah. um, I don't know what years they were issued. Okay. Um, sadly, there was a great event up in Pennsylvania. It was called FIG, Fort Indian Town Gap. And it was a, it's, it is an active military base today, and it was an active military training base during World War II. And mm-hmm. sadly, about three years ago, they had their last event due to an accident. You guys, we talked about that a couple yeah. of shows ago, didn't we? Yeah, and, and you and I didn't plan on having this discussion tonight, or I would have thought they brought somebody on. But I do know some guys down here who used to drive all the way to Pennsylvania and participate in that. And it, there, I've seen photos where there's been times where they're out there in knee-deep snow, and they are out there, and obviously, you know, <clears throat> their gear they planned ahead unlike the real battle of bulge so a lot of them had the luxury when they'd go they have the long johns underneath and they would have the scarves mm-hmm. and the and the and, and as much winter gear as they could to be realistic and so it was definitely probably a little more comfortable but they got to experience that with that being wow. said the closest i can come to that degree of cold is when i go up to georgia and i'm hoping to go this february Every year up in Lakeland, Georgia, we have um, a World War II tactical slash public event. It's more of a tactical than it is a public event. But last year, I the year before that, I got cold. And so last year, I got smart, and I stopped at, at um, Tractor Supply because I try to be as authentic as I can. And sure. last year was yeah. the first time I ever took a sleeping bag. So that was a little, little un realistic but hey they did have sleeping bags just mine was a walmart sleeping bag for ten dollars it probably had a lot better thermal but with that being said i knew it was going to get cold so i stopped the tractor supply and i bought a a bale of square hay so when i got up there i set up my pup tent threw my hay in the bottom whereas 60 percent of the other people slept in the boy scout um, loft and barracks a few of us had tents but anyhow i slept out in the tent um that night it got down to i think 28 Mm-hmm. And it wasn't quite 20, and I wasn't out there for six weeks, but I can tell you what it's like to, with the exception of the sleeping bag, only other 
I didn't have a pillow. When I go, I use my haversack as a pillow. I take four wool mm-hmm. blankets. With the exception of that year, I took a sleeping bag. But um, laying on a hard-ass ground, <laughs> even with a straw underneath me, and I actually have an original tent. I don't have a reproduction tent. I got an original tent. Mm-hmm. It has the holes in it. Um, yeah. It does have the flaps. But, you know, I did. You know how hard it is to find old-school long johns nowadays? I would imagine pretty tough. I went on Amazon and everything's this new mylar, this new synthetic. And I found a pair of old style cotton long johns and I did buy them and I wore them when I slept. (coughs) But when I got there Friday, it was raining all day. And so by the time we went to bed Friday night, you know, it had been raining all day. Our uniforms are wet. Um, The reason I knew it got down to 28 is I checked my phone the next morning because I went out to my truck to uh, get some stuff. My, I got a, toolbox on my bed it was covered and it had a layer of ice on it like all the rain water had frozen that night and so you know and i did wear my gloves out there but yeah just just that 20s and 30 degree it slowly warmed up through the day but just that and plus being a florida boy who's not acclimated to it you know Mm -hmm. just that minor temperature change was that night you know it does as robert like you say rob sleep not only sleeping on a hard ground but when you're 43 um I find my body's good for about six hours on the ground. <laughs> really? And so uh, it's not uncommon to maybe have a few drinks before I go to bed, maybe pass <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, kind of help out. Pass out for two hours and then sleep for six. But, yeah, um, after about six hours, I'm, I'm, you know, you're just tossing and turning. And plus, after I lost 60 pounds, I got less padding. And so I got more bones that mm-hmm. dig into the dirt. But um, somebody – this is an interesting thing you don't read much about in books. Um, Buddy Cowboy was a reenactor for the longest time. He's gotten out of it, and his name is Cowboy because he actually does run a cattle ranch. Uh-huh. And he told me what his grandf- his grandfather taught him is when you set up your pup tent, get your e-tool and cut yourself out about a three foot by, you know, however wide your body is, hole, just to divot, just enough so that when you're laying flat, your ass sits in it. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then when you turn over, your hips are kind of into it. And so it kind of makes an ergonomic divot in the bottom of your tent. I've never done it, but I. Mm-hmm. But he was explaining if you do that, when you're laying on your side or you're sleeping on your back, <clears throat> your back's kind of more straight because your butt's down in that little, that golf divot, if you will. And that so, makes sense. Yeah. And so those are things, that, you know, obviously digging um, sumps around the edge of your tent for when it rains and all that. But um yeah. Yeah. So the coldest I've ever experienced was like 28. So I could only I could only imagine. And when you're sitting there shivering, even with you know long johns on, and I I had my wool shirt on and my M43 uniform with a thicker jacket, but you know you still just sit there and shiver all damn night. And then when you wake oh, up yeah. in the morning, you're super tired, and which makes the whole event a little more authentic. But uh, yeah. But at 43, it would be a lot tougher than. <laughs> You know, I don't know how most of those guys are, how old most of those guys are, but I would imagine. Well, the average age back then was what I think. Obviously, we've all heard the stories of 17, 18 year olds, but I think depending on the battalion, the average age was between 19 and 20, which that's why it's a young man's game. Your body's more resilient. But reenacting is an old man's game because it's expensive and most 16 year olds don't have the interest to spend that money and or their parents aren't willing to spend the amount of money. And so sure. that's why, you know, people always talk about how old reenactors are. Well, that's because most 16 to 18 year olds don't have the interest in history, nor the, yeah. uh, the, I actually heard, I was before, you know, before I joined mm-hmm. you and Jeff, I went back and listened to some of the earlier episodes. And I remember 
more than once you guys talked about that and you'd have somebody on and it's like, well, Hey, you know, getting into living history is kind of cost. Well, let me just, know, it's very expensive. Let me just give you an example. Your son comes to you, says dad, I want to participate in this hobby. I need an error correct uniform. Okay. What are we looking at? Well, I need this helmet. Okay. It's, this is a post-war helmet, beginner helmet. Okay. Um, with a liner about 120 bucks. Okay. Uh, the boots, if I get them, I, I found mine used on eBay for 80, but if you're looking for a brand new pair of boots, anywhere between 180 to 200. Are we talking soldier or Marine? Either one. Okay. The uniform prices are about the same. Um, boondockers. Okay. When I got mine, I got mine from, um, at what price glory they were quote yeah. unquote, the Pacific carryovers. Mine were $175. So to get in this hobby, you're just dropping close to $200 on footwear. You haven't even gotten a gun, pants, just wow. footwear alone. Um, yep. P41, you're looking about roughly, depending on where you go, um, if you want the top line at the front or whatever, you're looking maybe between $98 to $130 just for the jacket. That jacket hanging up on the wall behind you, that's $150. bucks. And now you're, you don't even have a, you, know, you just got a pair of shoes and a jacket. You're already $400 into it. Damn. And that's why it took me a two years, a year and a half to get my first impression. But that's not counting the price of the rifle. It took me four or five years before I could forward and track down an M1. So yeah. my, my first couple of years, I carried around my Denix Thompson, which is just a paperweight. And even that was 120 bucks. And nice. Then, and yeah. then I had friends who had extra M1s who would let me use them during... during um. But now, with all that being said, once you get the web gear and all that and the boots, then it's not, you know, once you get your web gear, okay, let's say um, infantry, army, for example. So you get your you, you get your first impression. Let's say you're going to do your airborne, right? That's yeah. what a lot of people get into because of Band of Brothers. So you get your airborne. Oh, yeah. You get your musette bag. Okay, great. Now you want to switch over to infantry. Maybe you, found a, you want to start doing an infantry impression. Okay, well, technically, you can put your leggings over your boots. They'll look like early service boots. The only difference, obviously, is they're high tops, but leggings on them, you can't see how high they are. And the only way you can tell from a distance is if somebody looks at the heel to see the notch that they put on the airborne boots to keep them from getting snagged on the doorway of their plane. Your M1 belt's the same, so that saves you a couple hundred bucks. If you're doing late war, you can use the same musette bag, so you don't have to buy a haversack, so that'll save you a, a hundred and fifty bucks. You can use the same helmet, so that'll save you two hundred dollars. So now the only thing you're really buying is a new pair of pants and a new shirt. Uh-huh. So then once you get over that first boundary of your first impression, then to change impressions, you're only maybe two hundred dollars. But right. if you want to jump to the Marine Corps, technically the M1 belt's a different color. They use different canteen covers, different shoes. Different T-shirts underneath, um, different <laughs> backpacks, and so you're well, a different pattern on the herringbone twill, was it not? Well, completely different uniform. Um, yeah, different yeah. color, different pockets, different buttons, everything. So, like, you couldn't even really. I guess you could try. I've actually seen it because, <laughs> um, you know, you could try to wear your army HPT pants, but it's, it's a different color. Um, they refer to the yeah. uh, Marine Corps as um, sage green. I actually uh-huh. was at an event and I saw a guy, he, he, he grabbed, he was a younger cat. He grabbed the wrong trousers and I looked at him and I could tell he had on his army. He was doing army impression, but he had his army light HPT jacket, but he grabbed his Marine Corps pants and I could tell just because of the shade of green and you can see the HPT twill pattern. It's like, uh-huh. Oh, and interestingly enough, 
on the Army's HPT pants, there's no rear pocket. Okay. And there's no um, pant pocket. The only pockets they have are the cargo pants pockets. Mm-hmm. So the pockets are even different. Everything is completely different between Marine Corps and Army, even down to the pockets. It's insane. Well, yeah. So, but uh, it's Christmas time. Christmas is coming up. Uh, this is going to be our last episode for 2021. We're going to take off Christmas, the Monday following Christmas and the Monday following New Year's. And yeah. one of the things that, you know, my generation and definitely your generation, but it's kind of slowly dying off just because of movies like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, and you're getting more and more newer Christmas carols out, right? But I think for your generation and my generation who grew up in the 70s and 80s, one of the, obviously with the exception of the freedom, let's just say in pop, pop culture, one of the longest lasting influences from World War II has to be Christmas carols, right? Mm-hmm. Even to this day, the classics are from the 40s. And so I got a list of the 20 most well-known Christmas carols that we still listen to today that all came out of World War II. And I and I always, I always think it's interesting this time of year just to kind of reflect on this. And Jeff did, and I did a little different last year, but we, you know, we talked about how Christmas carols and all that stuff still have an impact today. Uh, number one on the list, White Christmas, being Crosby. I think we're all familiar right. with that one. Um, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Maybe you don't realize that came out of World War II. Judy Garland. Name sound familiar? Okay. She played Dorothy, did she not? On Wizard of Oz? Pretty sure Judy Garland. I think it was. Um, I think it was Judy Garland. Wizard. Wizard. <laughs> Of Oz. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Judy Garland. Uh, da, 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 da. People Don't scream at fat finger it. Uh, Dorothy E. Gale. Hold on. Dorothy Gale. Oh, no. Fictional character created by... Oh, I'm sorry. Dorothy was the character's name. But, yes, I'm pretty sure yeah. it was Judy Garland. Yes, it was Judy Garland. Yep. Who, uh, you know, her daughter was, right? You knew Judy Garland's daughter was? No. Tell me. Wasn't it? Wasn't Liza Minnelli her daughter? I, I want to say yes. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But anyhow, back to the list. I'm pretty sure Liza Minnelli. Um, I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with this title. Maybe I'd I don't, I'd recognize the song. This world producer would be great because they could look this stuff up. One, the Christmas song by Dorothy Day and Les Brown. I'm gonna put this in Google real uh, YouTube real quick and let's see if. We can write Doris it. Day or Dorothy Day? It says Dorothy Day, I believe. Let me look. You're right, Doris Day. Christmas song, Doris Day. The title doesn't sound familiar, but I'm sure once we hear it. Let me, oh, advertisement. Good thing I got this muted. See if I would, here we go. There's no rear pocket. Oh, yeah, I know what that is. Hold on. That is our... That works. That goes totally with the song. I know, but what that actually is, that's our live stream playing, and so that's going to start completely different between Marine... I don't know. Oh, I know. Sorry, that's coming out of YouTube. Okay, so I am familiar with this song now. I didn't realize it was called The Christmas Song. It's kind of a generic title. Hey, Doris, um, this is your... I never knew that. This is your manager here. Christmas season's coming around. Um, I had a couple of guys down in uh, 
Hollywood, right? Some new music because, you know, we're trying to keep the morale up, trying to, mm-hmm. you know, get people going. So uh, we got this great little Christmas song we want you to, to cut for us. <clears throat> sure, great. What's it called? The Christmas song. We just went over this. <laughs> the Christmas song. No, that's iconic, man, but I did not know that it was just called the Christmas song. I guess it's kind of genius because you're trying to sell records. You're trying to keep morale up. What a better way you walk into a record store. Yeah, I'm looking for that new Doris Day, the, the Christmas song. What's it called? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hold, hold on. We'll, we'll get it for you. So, yeah. So Absolutely. That's number three on the list. Uh, we're all familiar with uh, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Came out of that World came War out II. of World War II? Yep. That's okay. Connie Boswell with Russell Morgan. Jingle Bells, the Glenn Miller version. Okay. Um, I think I was actually playing that. That was the bed that I had underneath <clears throat> that um, news broadcast I was playing. No, I'm sorry. I was um, being crowded. No, I thought it was. Yeah. Now, listen to this. I don't want to play too much of this because YouTube will get us. But this is the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Jingle Bells, 1941. Now, we all know Jingle Bells because we sang it, right? We sang it in elementary school. Did it ever occur to you that we sang the cleaned-up elementary school version? Listen to this. I'm going to fast-forward a little bit. Okay, that's normal. He gives this whole thing about Mexico. Let me find it. There it is. Down in Mexico, <laughs> we have got no snow. Yeah. You have got no snow. Down in Mexico. You just violated about five human, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like, it's just weird. It's like, Mr. Miller. Um, human resources is coming to get you. Well, it's just when we think christmas we don't think mexico and now there's right. no down snow in mexico it's like sure what, what what does it have to do with christmas but i guess you know hey but all kidding aside i had never heard that version. i mean either. i was recording it for the because that's the bed i was using on the opener and, and i'm recording it and i'm like maxi what <laughs> i'm trying to put my headphones on because i was just right. expecting the the same boring jingle bells that we're used to and i heard that i'm like well that's that's an interesting <laughs> one um do, do, do. Winter Wonderland by Johnny Mercer. I'll be home for Christmas. Being Crosby, obviously, it makes sense. It'd be yeah, a World that, War II that song. That would have been a blockbuster song for World War II. You know, that was one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast before. Is like when you start reading about the European theater, Christmas became like the never end, never ending moving goalpost for yeah, we're, home we're, by Christmas. We're gonna be home by Christmas. <laughs> Jump into Berlin and be home by Christmas. Yep. You know, Market Garden. If this works, it'll get us home, home by, by Christmas. Christmas. Yep. And of course, and you know, reading in Tolan's book on the bulge, they're, they're talking about uh, allies had realized long before that they were not going to be home by Christmas. Nope. Uh, let's see here. Um, Twas the night before Christmas. Fred warning. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my love to keep me warm. Les Brown. That's another one I'm not familiar with by title. So let's go to the old Google machine and see if we can recognize I Have My Love to Keep Me Warm by Mr. Les Brown. Um, Chances are there's going to be an advert. Yes, there is. Let me pause that real quick. What's the maximum sound bite you can play on something like that? What do you mean? Per YouTube regulations. (sighs) They'll probably, what will happen, we're not monetized, so it really doesn't matter. Mm. Um, If 
hypothetically, if, you know, if you guys want to help us with the experiment, experiment, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, find the YouTube yeah, channel, absolutely. subscribe, get us to a thousand. From what I understand, what happens when you get to a thousand subscribers and you start making money on YouTube? About two years ago, I heard this threat. Apparently, what happens is if you play a copywritten song on your video, they basically take the money generated by that video and give it to the owner of the copyright of that music. Uh huh. So, and but to answer your question, the loose rule of thumb is about thirty seconds. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, I've also heard it's it's weird. Um, I've heard that if obviously if it's a song you play on every episode of your podcast, your video, then you kind of get into, or if you play it clean through, but the fact that right. you and I are talking over it, it's a one-off. You can kind of play the whole thing because once again, we're talking over it. We're not trying to play it as a radio station. We're not trying to, you know, we're using it as content. Right. Um, the interesting thing is all these songs are recorded in 1941. Anything prior to 1962 is not copyrighted. But that's only uh-huh. that's only the recordings. So even though these are written in the forties, example, this I got my love to keep me warm was posted in twenty eighteen, which means whoever recorded this version uh-huh. of it can basically it's it's super weird. But right. long, long story short, if the actual original recording was pre nineteen sixty two, there's no copyright laws. I had heard that, but I'd forgotten it. Well, That's very interesting. Well, when I worked in radio and I worked on a talk show and um, our channel changed formats a few times and we went to talk and then the radio and during the talk show that I produced during our four hour show, when we would go to commercials on the live stream on uh-huh. the FM radio, they would play modern day rock songs. But on the live stream version on the, when this first happened, they have since changed this, but during the live stream, when you listen on the radio, when it went to commercial, they're playing pre-1963 songs so they didn't have to pay the copyrights on them to save money but that has since changed but so that's kind of how i know so anyhow here is um i have my love to keep me warm not familiar with this one at all Okay, this is the Frank Sinatra version of it, but I'm still not familiar with that song. No, me neither. So I wouldn't put that on a list as classic Christmas carols, but to be fair to this website, I just searched Christmas songs from World War II. Uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Woody Herman, we're all familiar with that one. I Walk Alone Through Every Christmas, Fred Warning, not familiar with that one at all. Mm-hmm. Christmas Night in Harlem, Raymond Scott. I'm not familiar with that one either. Mm-hmm. Christmas Night in Harlem. Raymond Scott. There we go. Got to get this advertisement out of the way. Hold tight for 15 seconds. Speaking of Christmas shopping, I had to do some last minute Christmas shopping tonight. Oh, that's always fun. You know, not that it helps the, you know, sadly for the local retailers, I did majority of our shopping on Amazon, but we're like right at that point now that all the shipping's going to come late. And so like the last minute guess we had to do locally. Now, this is clearly a a 1940s 
song here. Uh huh. But I think this is primarily an instrumental. The Raymond Scott Quartet. Chris I bet he's a trumpet player. Sounds like a clarinet player. Well, the clarinet's definitely prominent in a song. Okay, so that's why we're not familiar with that one, because we're of the day and age where our Christmas carols have to have words to them, right? Mm-hmm. March of the Toys by Tommy, Tommy Dorsey. Now, I'm a huge fan of Tommy Dorsey, but I can't tell you March of the Toys. Don't know it by name. Will we know it by sound? This will be an interesting one to see. 1939, Tommy Dorsey. This is an old one here. Now, I'm going to say I don't know this one, but looking at the credits, if you are a Broadway buff, a musical buff, I don't know if they still use this, but according to the cover from this Victor Records, Tommy Dorsey, this is from the Babes in Toyland soundtrack, or play. Okay. Yeah, so if you're into musicals and Broadway and you're familiar with Babes in Toyland... You may be familiar with this song, but once it's probably going to be another instrumental. But yeah, so this is Tommy Dorsey's March of the Toys. Now, did your dad play a lot of what we consider classic jazz music when you're growing up? No, I mean, no. He liked music, but not not that genre. Yeah. I, I would I would imagine this being 1939, 1940s, they would probably look at it like their parents' music. You know, they're mm-hmm. probably looking for something more, a little more upbeat and, and swinging. Um, obviously, I really didn't listen to this style of music until I got into the hobby when you're sitting around a museum or a living history event. And it's got to be period correct. But I'll tell you, it's there's some a lot of it's interesting. Pandora used to have a really good station. They got rid of called uh, World War II Jazz. And they would play a lot of cool stuff on there. Uh, Winter weather, Fats Weller. We'll just skip through this real quick. Santa Claus is on his way, Sammy Kay. A little boy that Santa Claus forgot. Not familiar with that one. I'm sending a letter to Santa Claus. Um, Meet me under the mistletoe. I think we all know that one. Send me your love for Christmas and uh, Parade of the Wooden Soldiers. I almost wonder if that would be another Babes in Toyland one. It almost sounds like it would be. But, yeah, it's like... um, a lot of the the bigger Christmas carols that we're familiar with are definitely straight out of World War II. Well, like you said, I mean, Christmas was always that, you know, iconic signpost that, okay, let's get them home by Christmas, you know. I I would I haven't done research, but I would be willing to bet that there really wasn't a Christmas carol genre prior to World War II. I think music recording was still in its infancy. And then obviously during the war years, we needed motivation. We needed to keep spirits high. And, and so there was a big call for it. But I, I, it'd be interesting to, if I had more time or a producer, it'd be interesting to have someone pull up real quick, you know, the spike in quote unquote recorded Christmas music prior to 1942, mm-hmm. 43. But I, yeah. I would only imagine there's maybe a small handful. I know that. You know, a lot of your iconic Christmas carols, like A Little Town of Bethlehem, The First Noel, you know, Good King Wenceslas, 
Park, the Herald Angels. I mean, a lot of those were, you know, they were written back in the 17, 1800s. Yeah. But yeah, when were they recorded? Mm-hmm. I, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm on TikTok a lot, and um, a lot of people lip sync the scene from the original <clears throat> Shrek. Do you know the Muffin Man? Where he, the king's got the little cookie guy and the, the muffin man, the muffin man. Yes, I know the muffin man. He lives on Dreary Lane. And so I, I did a quick TikTok. And I said, you know, there is an entire generation out there now who thinks that the whole thing was written by the writers of Shrek. And I, and I went online. The first recorded documentation of the muffin man nursery rhyme was 1820 coming out of Lord. London basically about the plague and it was kind of it was a nursery rhyme from the views of the downtrodden about how the wealthier people are living (laughs) seems like a bit of a leap and it i just had a thought and and, and forgive us for going off world war ii but hey we can do that from time to time do you think (laughs) the reason that your generation and my generation are so durable is because of the Nursery rhymes we had when we were kids. <laughs> Let's look a ring around the rosy. You know where that came from, right? Ring Hit around the it. rosy. Huh? Ring around the rosy. Right, right. A pocket full of posies. Ashes to ashes. We all fall down. Came out of the Black Plague. A ring around. Mm. Uh, when you first got the bubonic plague, you would get little red spots on your skin with a ring around it. <clears throat> <clears throat> ring around a rosy and according to I lore, did not know that according to lore people would disguise well one because we all know now the plague was presented by bad personal hygiene no running toilets no sewer systems rats and all that shit. yeah just poor sanitation and so people would try to make themselves smell better because they're all poor they couldn't afford colognes and perfumes like the rich you know rich classes did so they would put right. they would put flowers in their pockets Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies. And then obviously, when they, people died, they would burn the bodies. Get rid of them quick. Ashes to ashes, we all fall down. So mm-hmm. <laughs> your generation, my generation, and people from the 17, 1800s grew up doing nursery rhymes about ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies. So we have that. Of course, you know, nothing makes it rugged than our mom sleeping, about, singing to us about sleeping in a baby carriage up on a tree limb that breaks and then we all plummet to the ground <laughs> safety violation right yeah, there so i mean we're just rugged because from the day we were born our mothers were singing to us things about death and, and decay <laughs> so of course we're gonna be rough rough and rugged yeah and it was even more so for the you know the world war ii generation mm-hmm. speaking mm. of world war ii generation and uh, pop culture you're familiar with the Golden Girls, right? Yes. You're familiar with B. Arthur? Heard the name. She played. I don't know the name. She played on Mod, and she yeah. and she also played um, her her character on Golden Girls was um, Dorothy uh, Spornak. She was the okay. manlier one of the bunch. Um, this came up on a military magazine. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, and um, I forget which one it was. But anyhow. B. Arthur's Marine Corps service is evidence of badassery. Despite her public denial, service records show that the Golden Girls actress, Rose, um, interestingly enough, Rose was actually played by Betty White, but the actress rose to the ranks of Staff Sergeant while in the Marine Corps Women's Reserve during World War II. 
Fellow Marines surely were thankful that Bernice Frankel was a friend, traveling down the road and back again. Doesn't seem like you're familiar with Golden Girls, but that's part of the theme song. Thank you for being a friend, traveling down the road and back again. So that's the pun that journalists always have to make when they're writing their articles. So anyhow, traveling down the road and back again. As a truck driver in the Marine Corps' women reserve during World War II, Frankel, better known as B. Arthur, portrayed... Uh, the brazen Dorothy Zornak on Golden Girls, a staunch feminist mod, as the show's namesake, that was a show from the 70s, she flat out denied her military service while alive. Because obviously when you're an actress in the 60s and 70s during the anti-Vietnam era, you want to be hip and cool and not an right. old fuddy-duddy from World War II. Uh, let's see. She flat out denied her military service while alive, but service records maintained at the National Archives confirmed the fact um, she was a confident Marine Corps um, officer. Her service became like I'm sorry. Her service becomes like evidence of badassery, says Dr. Kate Brown, author of 2020 Wayne State University Press book, The Golden Girls. Despite her denial, Brown said there is no question that the B. Arthur stint in the Marine Corps was, uh, made sense. "Quote: I think there is loyalty." Brown said she got that sort of quality being an introvert with people. And later in life, being so politically active with different causes, it makes sense to me um, if there were calls for service in World War II, she would be up to answering that call. But yeah, this this is a really good write-up. So if you guys are familiar with B. Arthur from Mod and Golden Girls, they actually have photos of her in her uniform doing uh, work around the um, the barracks in there, and they... They actually pulled up her service records, and um, you can see a letter from B. Arthur's service uh, recording indicating her interest in joining the Marine Corps Women Reserve. So basically, she looks like she wrote hand hand wrote a letter of why she should be um, approved to join the Women's Reserve back in the day. So it's always interesting. Very cool. Um, there is a great documentary called Return to Tarawa, and. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen it, right? It came out in the, I think late '90s. Uh, it sounds really familiar. That's basically the one where I forget the the vet's name, but he was a coxswain on a landing craft, and he went back in the early 2000s. Somebody, Eddie Albert. Uh, hold on, let me Google. It. Actually, Green Acres. Well, that that's what I was getting to, but that's not who was in it. Uh, the Return to Tarawa <clears throat> documentary. Um, cause anyhow, he, the, uh, the return of Tarawa, World War II veteran. Let's see. Um, <laughs> return of Tarawa, Leon Cooper story, 2009 documentary. Oh, okay. And, uh, it's actually, I need to check that out. it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can see the whole thing. And that's actually where I first became aware of, um, the history flight, um, service down there. Those are the ones who were responsible for recovering, uh, Marine Corps, uh, body parts to this day they're the ones that help find uh bonnie man evans as we spoke to his grandson and uh, bones of my grandfather right but anyhow in this documentary leon cooper goes back down to tarawa and is um perplexed dismayed and downright disgusted on the horrible conditions in which those beaches were in when it came to litter and pollution right i've heard Tara was pretty bad and so during this documentary um He's trying to, I want to say, for some reason, I remember him writing to Al Gore, but this was obviously after Clinton's stint. 
But anyhow, he okay. was writing Al Gore, probably because that was right around the time Al Gore was really heavy into the environmental stuff. He was writing Al Gore, trying to get Al Gore to help back him and getting the United States government to fund recycling plants and trash collection on Tarawa. Because basically the local government just can't afford it. They don't have the education. You go to Red Beach One, it's just diapers and bottles and trash. And it's just god awful. And so in this Mm -hmm. in this documentary, he's he he's on a mission and he brings up what you're just talking about, Eddie Albert. He's saying, you know, there's this just landing craft going back and forth all day and they're just pulling the Marines out and taking them back, wounding Marines and all day long it turns out it was Eddie Albert from green acre i think he got a bronze star for doing that mm-hmm. and um but they were interviewing like construction like con- uh american contractors down there who own like construction companies and they say every time they break ground on a new project they recover artifacts and bones sure yeah. and sadly on this one recording he said he had the the remains of an m1 helmet liner two soles of some boondockers and some bones of a Marine that had been sitting under his drafting table for eight months because we were so slow in the recovery process, even once they've been reported. Wow. And, and uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a good documentary. It's actually on um, YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. Um, so, but yeah, it's, you hear all the time, all these actors that we grew up watching in the seventies and eighties and then sixties who obviously yeah. it makes sense because their entire generation served. That's right. But, well, I mean, if we're, we're talking Christmas stuff here, sure. man, I mean, a classic, iconic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life with, mm-hmm. you know, our favorite B-24 pilot, James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. You know, um, I think he commanded a B-24 squadron, actually. Yeah, I'm looking that up right now. Yep. Um, <laughs> Stewart flew 20 dangerous combat missions in a B-24 uh, combat pilot wing commander of the squadron commander earning the distinguished flying cross two oak leaf clusters the medal of um sorry the air medal with three oak leaf clusters in the french croix de guerre with palm pardon my french for really messing up that french but yeah he um let's see here stuart flew over okay Stuart had flown over 400 flight hours as a civilian pilot when he enlisted in the Army Corps in 1941 and became an instructor of both the B-17 and the B-24. In November 1943, Stuart was sent to England as Operation Officer of the 703 Squadron, 445th Bombardment Group of the 8th Air Force, transferring to the 453 Bombardment Group in March of 1944. <coughs> Stuart flew 20 dangerous combat missions, as we just read. After the war, Stuart remained in the United States Air Force Reserve and was promoted to Brigadier General by 1959. Uh-huh. So, I mean, not only did he serve, but he kind of a lifer on top of his acting Oh, career. yeah. I mean, he served with great distinction from from everything I heard. You and I were <laughs> you and I were doing a not not suitable for podcasts, bad impressions of Band of Brothers before the show went on the air. And uh we were doing the scene about where um, Sobel cut the fence and they mm-hmm. wanted the news that Major Horton. Now, we all learned from Band of Brothers that Major Horton did not survive the war, but do you know how he actually died? Well, I mean, I know the scene, you know, Riley Horton, they took that the hell beat out of him. Yeah, but no, I, I don't. Now, not to belate this book too much, but it is uh, so full of great 
history, once again, going back to what seems to be the book of the last couple months for me, September mm-hmm. Hope. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but uh, let's see here. Uh, go to the previous page. Near the uh, railroad st- near, near the railroad station south of town where each company was fighting hard to ward off the attack, Major Horton arrived. The Major was hoping to spot the German route of advance and arrange for artillery to saturate it. The first lieutenant, Robert Stroud, the company commander in tow, he began working his way forward towards the railroad tracks. Private first, cl- Private first Class Joe Harris saw the two officers and warned them that the enemy fire was heavy in that direction, but they ignored him. They stopped between a pair of houses in what would amount to no man's land and tried to spot the Germans. Within seconds, mortar shells exploded all around them. Quote, we immediately hit the ground, Stroud said. After they stopped firing, I got up, but Major Horton did not. I turned him over and saw that he was white and bubbling at the mouth. Stroud pulled the wounded major back to the direction of the company. Other soldiers left the cover to help them. They managed to evacuate Horton, but he died soon thereafter. A paramedics mm-hmm. placed his body on the Jeep, and they began driving him to the rear while dodging artillery shells along the way. They braked and swerved so much that one of the soldiers had to hang on to Horton's body to keep him from falling into the mud. So like a lot of, you know, we hear a lot of times there's commanders who hang out in the rear with the gear and don't want to get out of the perpetual safety of being in the rear. And then there's people like Horton who want to get eyes on the ground, get a sense of what actually is going on to get a better sense of how to, to lead his men. And he went out trying to figure out which way the Germans were coming and he got taken out in essentially an artillery strike. Well, and in essence, that is what, if you, if you listen to Sink's lines, that kind of is what they say. Yeah. But, yeah, but you know, it, obviously, I mean, because Horton was not an actual character. I mean, they talked about him because he was a real figure, but in the miniseries, we never actually see Major Horton. No, we just hear his name enough that we know who he was and that existed. And that was one of the, and, and I think that's one of the things you discussed when, when it comes to the difference between the Band of Brothers and the Pacific is uh-huh. the Band of Brothers cover a lot more, even if it's just verbally through stories, you get more of a sense of the command structure right? of what's going on, whereas the Pacific, you know, they cover the logistics, a little bit of the command structure, you know, who Chesty Puller was and all that, but <clears> you're, you're, the primary right. focus was on those five guys and their buddies and the living conditions and the battle in which they fought, not so much, you know, yep. the Smiths and all that stuff. And so, but... Um, Beneath the rim of the helmet, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Um, here's a little World War II news. I, I thought, I, I've actually had this one, but I didn't want to do it last week and interview, interrupt an interview. Um, Athens, Greece... I may have done this, but I think I did not. Um, And if I did, we'll just do it again and you can stop me. But Athens, Greece, Russians will return to Greece. The pre-war archive, the Jewish communities that were stolen by Nazi forces in the Mediterranean countries, Jewish Council said on Thursday. Quote, our history will return home, the Central Board of Jewish Communities in Greece said in a statement. KAIS is the abbreviation, uh, said the Nazi forces in July 1942 had plundered archives, books, and religious artifacts from 30 synagogues, libraries, and commercial institutions um, in which, at the time, were the home of some of the largest Jewish populations in Europe. 
Um, they were transferred to Moscow after the Red Army took to Berlin in 1945. Quote, the restitution would mean justice and would transmit knowledge about the part of a Greek people who contributed to the progress of the country and no longer exist. That of 60,000 Greek Jews who were deported and exterminated in the Nazi death camps. You know, that's we hear a lot about the the Jews that were rounded up in, you know, the primary European areas, but you know, I guess unless you do a lot of reading up on Italy and Stalin, how you know, in that whole area and, and Greece and all in the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. we really don't hear too much about the the roundups in the Mediterranean. No, no, not not typically. I mean, not to the numbers that you could ask somebody and they say, "Oh yeah, 60,000 Greek Jews were rounded up." I mean, I I think yeah. it's probably the first time I've ever heard that number. Well, you know, if you talk about, you know, PTO, ETO, the, the, I mean, the Mediterranean, I've probably read the least mm-hmm. about that theater of World War II. Uh, and there's, there's some compelling stories there. I mean, there's some great stuff there. Back to the story. The acknowledgement was arranged on Wednesday during a visit to Moscow by the Greek prime minister. I'm not even going to bother slaughtering his name. Forgive me for that. Uh, no date on the return was given. The archives had until now been stored among Russian military files, and Greece had sought out the return for decades, the prime minister's office said. Um, at the return of the last century, some 90,000 Jews lived in this Greek community, the key trading port of the Ottoman Empire, making up some 60% of the population. By the end of World War II, faced with poverty tension with the Greeks, who took control over the city in 1912, and the devastating fire that left 55,000 homeless in 1917, the community dwindled to some 55,000. Obviously, um, if we're talking 1917, that's World War I numbers. So um, I don't know why they said it, but on the eve of World War II. But anyhow, um, the Nazis entered the city in April 1941, back to World War II. But it was not until two years later that they began implementing their final solution to the Greek uh, Jewry. They say here, on March 15, 1943, the Nazis began deporting the Jews from the Thaleskan, sorry, that Greek community that I just, I'm not smart enough to pronounce properly. Some 4,000 people were loaded onto cattle cars and were shipped off to Auschwitz, a death camp in the Nazi-occupied Poland, the longest journey of all the train transports to the Holocaust. 18 more convoys followed by August 49,000 out of the city's pre-war population of 55,000 Jews had been deported fewer than 2,000. <sighs> that is that is staggering and disgusting that they in this one community they almost achieved their goal of eliminating them. Right. 55,000. <sighs> But luckily, this Greek community will get that paperwork back, and and uh, I'm sure I can only imagine once they get that documentation back, and they can come up with some names. There will be some beautiful monuments and plaques made up, you know, oh, as sure. we tend yeah. to do with you know names of the victims and those lost during historical <sighs> battles. But uh, yeah, that, it's just. I don't know. It's just so so gross. And uh, you had a book you said you wanted to review, correct? We're talking about. Well, yeah. I just started by my friend Adam Makos. Just started Spearhead, but Jeff said he. I think yeah. he's like almost finished with it. So he wanted to 
to hold off so we could all talk about it. Yeah, that would only be fair because he did miss out on the John Bassalone talk, and I know that really irked him. Poor yeah. Jeff. So maybe we shouldn't <laughs> come out and steal conversations and topics out from underneath him. But it's okay to say that, I yeah, I just started. I finished the Tolan book on Battle of the Bulge, which, you know, that that's under that that class of books, an oldie but a goodie. Because I think it was written in 1959. So, uh, but I, I finished that and, you know, read the Osprey book on the volume one of the bulge and then started spearhead, uh, last night. And I think when I finish it, I want to jump into Danny Parker's book on the battle of the bulge. Cause he wrote another book, kind of a companion book to call to win the winter sky. Okay. And that's strictly, uh, aviation stuff, you know, the Luftwaffe Operation Bowden plot, kind of the last gasp effort against the Allies, uh, you know, early 45. Yeah, I got to start dedicating, I got to start scheduling dedicated reading time because people was like, wow, he's been reading September Hope forever. Yes, I have, but it's not because I didn't say that. I mean, no, I'm saying I, I hear what the <laughs> listeners thinking. And, yeah. and, and part of the reason is one, I'm, I'm not saying you guys aren't. Either. I'm super mad busy and not, not between three podcasts, YouTube and all that. I only read for about 20 minutes a night. And so, you know, wow. yeah. so if I, if I were to force myself to read for two or three, you know, at least an hour or two, but yeah, 20 to 30 minutes max every once in a yeah. while, I'll, 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 uh, sit there and read a little longer, but that's, that's part of the reason why I've been, you know, reading this one for so long, but what uh, what's next on your list after you finish September? Are you pretty close to finishing that? Yeah, no, I'm. I got maybe two chapters left. Um, What's next on your list? You know, I got that Peleliu book that I bought. Tragic Triumph. Yep. And yep, that's I, a good one. I I want to read that, but you know, we for the sake of the show, I'm kind of I'm looking at some books that I got for presents. Um, I have this book called The Fatal Dive about submarines. We don't ever give submarine talk on here because you know, no, no one really. No one's really submarine experts, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering maybe to get out of my my comfort zone because obviously I know a lot about the PTO and I know a substantial amount about the ETO, but maybe just for sake of content, maybe I'm thinking I got Fatal Dive, I have um, Hitler's uh, Last Days, which I think I already read, but I, th- I know I have one about um, one of the, uh, I think the Desert Fox, I think I... I got some books about some of them. Oh, Panzer! <clears throat> I got a book here called Panzer Generals. Maybe I should read. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking about maybe breaking into one or two of those. I'm usually on ETOs. We've talked about this. I'm usually on ETO stuff through the cold weather or Eastern mm-hmm. Front, and then when it starts warming back up, man, I'm I'm back to Guadalcanal and Okinawa and Peleliu and Cape Gloucester and, and the the Pacific, you know. But, um. Yeah, I mean, that's... If you ever find yourself overrun with melancholy and you want to be depressed and you want to live like you, you know, maybe like a depressed 18 to 20-year-old, a really good book into the psyche of Hitler and what made him such a horrible piece of shit that he was um, is called Hitler, The Pathology of Evil. Um, my dad gave me that book a few years back. And it's pretty – now, obviously, a lot of this is a hypothesis based on the author. But the evidence right. he pre, the evidence that he presents going all the way back to Hitler's childhood, 
it, it seems to me, reading this book and the evidence this guy presents, and this is not a hypothesis of his, it's a hypothesis of mine that I gathered reading the evidence. Based on the laws that Hitler put into place when he first got into power, if those laws had existed before he was born, he would have never have been born. So it seems like he had such low self-esteem and such lo- hatred for himself and his family that he was almost trying to create policies that would prevent that would have prevented him from ever being born. And one uh-huh. of those one of those is the fact that when he got into power, one of the first rules he made was that no um rich people back then obviously they had they had people maids they had uh you know housekeepers servants, yeah. servants one of the first ones he made was no jewish girl of childbearing years could work for an anglo mm-hmm. and when he was a kid there was rumors around his family that his father had an affair with his mother with their jewish house servant mm-hmm. and then you know Obviously, we all, you know, but anyhow, there, it's very interesting insight. Uh, kind of talking now, we know that not only did he round up the Jews, but he, he rounded up gypsies and homosexuals. Um, there's a whole chapter about um, his best friend post World War One that he often wrote letters to, fantasizing about how him and this other gentleman would grow old together. Uh, prior to the, his best friend getting married to a woman. It's just, there's just a lot of interesting stuff in there that really del, uh, del- makes you wonder. And they, they show where he gets his, um, people don't realize the whole Heil Hitler thing, the whole arm right. movement. He stole that from Mussolini. He, yeah, he'll do too. Mm-hmm. He stole that from Mussolini. Uh, the whole pencil mustache, he got that. There's a picture of a painting in there of, it's supposed to be like representative of, um, oh crap, apocalypse. Um, the end of the Bible. Um, revelations. Revelations of a demon on a horse, and in the painting, the guy had the little pencil mustache. So Hitler basically huh. stole his look from this this painting that's way beyond his years. And there's actually mm-hmm. photos from his friend took before he got the power. In his photo studio of Hitler practicing his speeches and doing the whole hand gestures and all that stuff. And they really go in this book, Path, Hitler, the pathology of evil. It's like I said, it's kind of dark and you know, it's depressing as shit, but if you really want to, mm-hmm. if you really want to get an insight on what made him so horrible and how he got to doing the things he did, um, his, you know, his father was a very strict, his dad was like a, um, politician of the, the, towns they lived in it's like a local gallider or something yeah, like that he wasn't quite local a local official kind of low level yeah he was like a low level official but he had enough power to you know be looked up to in, in the communities but he was like a strict disciplinarian to hitler but his oh. mom was on the other you know his mom was one of those all my kid could do no wrong type thing so when his dad was disciplining him and blah you know do all this horrible crap to him as a kid he would go to his mom and she would baby him the whole other direction it's just the whole his whole fundamental childhood, it just the whole thing is just it gives you a real insight into you know how things got as bad as they were. But yeah, sure. it's, it's one um that you may want to put somewhere on your list someday if you want to get on that road. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. 
Hitler's Last Days was a book someone gave me I haven't read yet. You know, I, I with with the exception of the pathology of evil, I really don't get too much into into his stuff. I just I don't know. I've I've never explored it on any you know, other than a other than a really cursory level of just reading the things I normally read, which focus more on the military involvement and those aspects and you know that he would keep his his inner confidants his, his inner circle he would keep them up all hours of the mm-hmm. night you know bloviating about and just going on in these endless monologues that's you know, all the PCP about his world views and, huh? that's because all the um, amphetamines he was on oh yeah you know but <laughs> you can just picture his mm-hmm. his generals are just like now <laughs> trying I, to stay awake and he's I haven't heard this anywhere but within this book but this author claims that Hitler was a strict uh, devout vegetarian to the point where if people ate meat in front of him he would call them meat eaters and huh, frown upon them and according to this book once again I'm, I'm just going off this book he's talking about like when Hitler would review the human experiment footage right. Only time he would look away is when they were performing experiments on animals. Like he was a huge dog lover. So to him, you know, oh, yeah. oh I can, you can do the world's most horrible stuff to human beings because he hated humans so bad. But you do that to a dog, he would get like incensed about it. So yeah, uh-huh. he's just weird. He just, his, I don't know, his worldview was just so rocked. Uh, it's all yeah, you can say. Without he, a doubt. And that's why the book's called The Pathology of Evil because I mean, Obviously, as history can show, he's definitely one of the most evil, you know, or at least top five out of all the world's evil people. Mm-hmm. You know, some may say Genghis Khan and all that, but I guess Hitler probably number one. But I more certified historians were better to make that argument than me. But yeah, it's just uh, one of those one of those books that's on my shelf. But yeah, so I want to read that Peleliu book, but I kind of think I maybe I might jump into that final dive about the mm-hmm. submarines. Um, is that from the American or German perspective? Uh, I'm just looking at the binder. Hold two seconds. I'll grab it. I just got to run across the studio. <sighs> I guess it's the American uh, final dive solving the world war two mystery of the USS Grunion. So yeah. Oh, okay. So when I was at Auburn, um, I minored in German, and my German teacher, her, I remember her telling us that her father-in-law had been a U-boat crewman. Okay. And and I remember being really fascinated by that because you know I had seen DOS boat, um, and and of course you know I didn't have access to the wealth of books and things that we have access to now, but. Um, I looked it up and I mean, I, I think I told her because she was a very nice lady and we talked a lot. I said, you know, if your father-in-law was a U-boat crewman, that he was, he was one of 7,000 out of about 32,000 who actually survived to make it home. Sorry. I was just, I, I just opened this book and you and I, and, and Jeff were talking off the air last week about a lot of times when you book authors, um, their publishing company will send you a advanced copy of the book. And I think I remember now, I, the reason I didn't remember too much about this book is I think I got this 
when I worked in radio because I opened it up and here is a press release about this particular book and contact okay. information. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I've had this book for so long. I got it when I worked in radio that actually has the press release and inter- I should read this and then go to the press release and see if I can book the author. Well, you ought to. I have the booking information right there. Things have been sitting on my shelf for probably five years. They're like, oh, yeah, we sent that out years ago, but thanks for contacting us. Hey, we're booked up over here, but yeah. Um, One more thing before we go. I know. Thank you guys for hanging out with us. Um, Pull this up from the National World War II Museum.org. Christmas on the home front during World War II. Here's just little factoids, if you will. We'll just burn through real quick. During World War II, Christmas trees were in short supply. Makes sense because the lack of manpower to cut the trees down and the shortage of railroad space and the, to ship the trees to market. So Americans rushed to buy American-made viscous artificial trees. So those were like the first <laughs> artificial trees back then looked horrible back in the day. I mean, <laughs> I remember growing up... you. The, just think five foot tall Charlie Brown Christmas trees. You could see. I was them. just about to say Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Artificial trees have come a long way in the last eighty years. Now, you like, yeah. you really have to look like at those at the real expensive ones. Like, I saw one at a store that actually had two or three different textures, like of the quality of needles. And you're like, you really had to dig inside to see wow. if it was artificial. In 1941, a five-foot Christmas tree could be purchased for 75 cents. Now it would cost you about 95 bucks. Yeah, yeah probably <laughs> more than that. Well, Carrie and I, we were we were pro real Christmas trees for the longest time, and I think 2018 yeah. is when we got our first artificial tree because, you know, the the price was slowly going up and up and up. And then we bought our house with cathedral ceilings, and I'm six foot five. So being six foot five, you don't want a six foot Christmas tree. And so we have like a, I think an eight footer now. But we ended up buying one finally years ago. And I miss the smell, but I don't miss the needle droppings and dragging that son of a bitch out my front door at the end of the year. Man, there's pros and cons. We Andrea and I've gone. We when we first got married, we had the real trees. Then we went pre lit. Mm-hmm. artificial for several years and i mean that was like stowing a dead body you know the, the damn box is like you're shoving it in there well so we did that for several years and you know i'm like man if we would get rid of this damn thing i would have all <laughs> kinds of room in the shed yep. so we got rid of that went back to real trees and now we're back on real trees so the other that, that's the other downside here in florida insects we don't have winter we don't have snow we don't have dropping temperature that kills off the ants and so having that water source in the middle of your tile floor is just an attraction for lizards bugs and everything else this is something that uh no no, not yet next one the short the shortage of materials like aluminum and tin used to produce ornaments led to many people making their own ornaments at home Magazine uh, magazines contain patterns uh, for ornaments made out of non-proprietary war materials like paper, string, and natural objects such as pine cones and or nuts. And then, obviously, we all know the popcorn tradition. Yeah. This one gave me a flashback, and my mom had these until the 80s. Electrical bulb lights were... Cr- uh, cr- uh, electrical bulb lights were uh, created during the 1940s no, that ain't, that's not the one. 
Electric bulb lights were created during the 40s. No, they're talking about the bubbler lights. Remember the bubblers? You're talking about the C9 lights? They had the little base, and you had the little almost like thermometer, and it made the bubbles come up in the colors. Well, actually, I have a night light, a Christmas night light that my wife got me that's one of those. Yeah, the the bubblers were uh, created, too. To give the Christmas trees a snow-covered effect, people would mix a box of Lux soap powder with two cups of water and brush the concentration on the branches of their trees. Uh, this makes sense too. Fewer men were home, or uh, fewer men at home resulted in fewer men available to dress up and play Santa Claus. Women started to substitute Santas at Saks Fifth Avenue in New York and other department stores around the United States. I'll be home for Christmas and White Christmas were both written during the 1940s, as we discussed earlier, and quickly uh-huh. gained popularity during the war weary but optimistic population. Travel during the holidays was limited to. A must for families due to the rationing of tires and gasoline. Americans saved up their food rations and stamps to provide extra food for fine holiday meals. And lastly, many Americans threw their German-blown glass ornaments and exotic Japanese ornaments in the trash as soon as the war began. Shortly after the war, a Corning Glass Company in New York began mass production of Christmas tree bulbs using uh, machines designed to produce light bulbs. Corning can make uh, more ornaments in a single minute than the German cottage glass blower could make in a whole day. So, kind of like we did uh, after 9-11, we renamed our French fries to Freedom Fries. <laughs> it was all good from there. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, we tossed out all our German and Japanese made ornaments and uh, fancy stuff, and we went pro All-American made, which, you know, we really haven't talked about too much on this, and we're going to wrap it up. But on my other podcast, I was talking to my brother. It's like, you know, with the supply shortage and everything sitting off of uh, the coast of California and all the shortages during the pandemic, kind of makes you think that maybe we need to start living like our grandparents who lived through the Great Depression. Remember, they your your dad wouldn't throw anything away. Every anything that oh, came sure. with a sealable lid or a box ended up in the garage holding something. But yeah. more importantly, I think we need to, even if it costs you a little bit more out to counter, I think we need to start focusing on buying stuff that lasts and trying yeah. to repair things that break instead of throwing well, them the, away. The sad thing is, I mean, you know, it's just, I love the idea of a quality item that it will last and last. And if it breaks, you get it fixed. But hell, it's just cheaper to buy a new one. Yeah, but it's. And that's sad. It's interesting, know? though, because I'm an IT guy and I cannot tell you. Um, the videos I produce my YouTube videos on, I mean, laptop. That was a laptop that was de- deemed not good enough by a customer. They bought a brand new laptop. I had me copy the date on it. Didn't want the old one. Okay, I'll get, take care of it for you. I put a new hard drive in it, load of Windows, and it's good enough to produce YouTube videos. Um, the computer over here, computer station number one in this podcast studio is no one. Nah, computer's not, it's not hip enough. It's not got the latest greatest i want a new one they bought a new computer transferred their data gave them their hard drive told me to recycle this one put a new hard drive in it works well enough to do this podcast so it you know computers are one of the things people list as being obsolete which sure if you're playing you know expensive video games you need the latest greatest or you're producing hollywood grade videos sure but if you're if you're checking emails getting on facebook and uh Processing some photos for some family stuff, you know, your computers can actually last a hell of a lot longer than people give them credit for. 
Well, that, that's good to know. Yeah. But anyhow, we're going to, before we go, Henry, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything going on? Yeah. Um, actually, so a week from tomorrow, Tuesday the 28th, I'm going to have a conversation with Angus Wallace of the World War II podcast. Nice. Um, I have been listening to his shows for a while. Uh, he's been around for several years. Uh, but yeah, he reached out to me. Um, we're going to have a conversation Tuesday, the 28th. Um, that does not mean that's when the show will air. I don't sure. know when that'll be, but we'll, we'll do it on the 28th. Um, and then I corresponded today with the guy that I mentioned. I think it probably kind of got lost in the shuffle because we were texting back and forth a lot, but Jonathan Bernstein, he is the arms and armor curator for the museum of the Marine Corps. Nice. Um, he was on Paul Woodadge's World War II TV, and he was talking about Ninth Air Force P-47s, <clears throat> Army Air Corps stuff. Jeff would love it. Um, and he was talking about all that during the Battle of the Bulge, and, and I was loving it, too, because P-47 is probably my second all-time favorite airplane. But uh, I contacted Paul and said, hey, man, I'd, I wouldn't mind talking to him. And Paul just shot me back. Yeah, he'd be a great guest for your podcast. He'd love to talk to you, you know. So I emailed him, Paul gave me his email address. I emailed him earlier today, uh, expecting maybe or maybe not get a response. He sent me back a super nice, effusive, you know, email, um, and had some great things to say about my dad's book. Not that I was asking for that, but I was like, Hey man, I'm super into the stuff you were talking about. Ninth air force P-47s, all that good stuff. Um, and he is the arms and armor curator at the museum of the Marine Corps, nice. but uh, I mentioned our show. He said he'd like to come on. So, you know, you, me, and Jeff will get together and figure out when that'll happen. Absolutely. Probably, I guess, February, maybe, because it sounds like we're kind of booked for January. I know Paul would add, we're, we're talking about having him. What what date did you put him on the calendar? Was it January 17th? I would have to look. We'll we'll discuss that off air. But, yeah, I'd have to okay. look. Um, but, yeah, you know, I was just thinking whether it's the National museum for the marine corps or maybe even the the uh national world war ii museum which would be closer to you mm -hmm. i think it'd be kind of cool if me you and jeff and family or whatever we can kind of pin down a date where maybe the three of us can actually meet in real life at one of those museums that'd be kind of cool that that would be great don i mean i i would love that i mean we're actually well the 20th anniversary 20th symposium of band of brothers is january 8th and 9th or january 8th um that to, to what you said yes that's a great idea and yeah. we we really need to shoot for that but to do it at a museum would be awesome and, because and not it only is it close to you but the, um, the marine corps would be cool but that's in virginia and that would be further travel for jeff oh yeah be further yeah. travel for you but the the national museum of world war ii is closer to you it's closer to me it's and that one may be a, a you know one. and here's an idea here's an idea it kind of got me we can do a live podcast Obviously, from there I was going to say, I mean, I know people there, um, contact them and go, Hey man, we, we, I do a pod. They, I mean, they've really been nice to me and my family through the years. Um, uh, yeah. Let's discuss that off the idea. air. Cause something like that would be something we'd want to schedule months in advance, obviously for logistics, cool. but too, but for promotion, that's not something you want to say, Oh, by the way, next week we'll be here. Tune in. That's something we'd want to promote months out. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we need to try to figure out the logistics on that let's work on that in the background but uh 
yeah, we want to thank you guys for joining us for another episode. We will be back. Oh, let's see. We're off this Monday. and Basically, we're off the Monday following Christmas. We're off the Monday following New Year's Eve. So we will be back on looks like the 10th. And that is when uh, Matt DePalma will be joining us. So uh, thank you guys, as always, for hanging out with us for another episode. Jeff will be back with us on the 10th. And um, if you haven't done so, please head over to uh, WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link, like, and subscribe. (laughs) Share us with your friend. It's a dollar a month. If you do sign up for the $7.50 a month account, you will get a T-shirt after month two. I'm getting ready to send out two here shortly. And as we said, for the Patreon members, um, we are getting ready to print up some new WTSP vinyl stickers. I did the What's in Your Head podcast last week. Uh, We're going to do the WTSP. And uh, please head over to YouTube. Like and subscribe on our YouTube page. That's where we do our live streams every Tuesday, and that's where you can see all, all the other videos. Hopefully, February rolls around. I'll be going up to Georgia to do another World War II event. It's been a light season this year. Obviously, we're still kind of in pandemic mode, so some of the places don't have the events that they would have in the past. So the YouTube content from our World War II stuff is light, with the exception of this podcast, but we will have some up there. But there's other content as well, and you can go support the channel that way. We're really trying to get to 1,000 so that um, we can get a little bit of our beak sweat off the advertisement that YouTube's already playing on our content, so why shouldn't we get a share of that? But please like, subscribe, share us with your friend, but more importantly, just uh, share us with your friend. That doesn't cost you a dime. Um, you know, just tell people, hey, check out these guys. You can find us anywhere. We don't really talk about this too much. Yes, you can find our show and download it at WTSP.RollWar2.com, but you can find us anywhere podcasts are found. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Google Music. So anywhere that you can download podcasts, you can also find us. So that is going to wrap it up for us. Um, Henry, do you have any final words before we go? No, just uh, hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and, you know, stick with us. I think January we've got some good stuff coming up. Yep, we got, uh, we've already got like two or three people booked, and uh, we're starting to get into, uh, we're getting to that place now that we've had enough guests on here that it's getting easier to book other guests. One of the hardest things about starting a podcast and getting guests is there so many podcasts out there that people are reluctant to do a podcast that no one's been on before? So once you start <clears> getting sure. people on and getting the name recognition, more and more people are willing to come on. And that's what we are starting to see. We're definitely getting more yeses in the yes category. And we're honestly, let's be honest, we're actually starting to put more effort into booking guests. And so those two things coincide. We're actually getting yeses and we're getting a guest book. And so stick around. Thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you in 2022. Thank you, Henry. Later. All right. Good night. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 